And one of the things we found in looking at history of grand strategy in this group is that it's not an accident that the United States was positioned to be a world power uh, at the end of World War II. That the strategy from the founding to World War I was really one of let's stand for democratic principles, but let's not impose them in other places. And that's how we were able to expand our territory, keep European powers out of the Western Hemisphere, ensure freedom of navigation, etc. And so what we're arguing here is that we're not anti-democratization and human rights, but we have to be much more prudent about how we go about promoting those values. And if recent history is any guide, we really are not good at imposing democracy on countries from the outside. And it's not just that it's against American interests, it's that hundreds of thousands of people in these countries, in the Syrian civil war, in Libya, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, have suffered also. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 26th, 2016. That was the voice of Amy Zegart, arguing that the United States should be unapologetic in its pursuit of economic and security interests and more tempered in the pursuit of ideals. This week on the podcast, Lawfare's Ben Wittes interviewed Zegart and Stephen Krasner, both of the Hoover Institution, about their recently released national security strategy called Pragmatic Engagement Amidst Global Uncertainty, Three Major Challenges. The document, which was produced by the Hoover Institution's Working Group on Foreign Policy and Grand Strategy, presents three key challenges to the future of U.S. security and outlines three principles that should guide the United States' response ultimately calling for a pragmatic foreign policy that does not go in search of monsters abroad. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 163, Amy Zegart and Stephen Krasner on the need for pragmatic engagement amidst global uncertainty. So, Steve, let me start with the observation and paradox with which you guys begin this paper which is uh, that America is very, very safe and secure, and yet Americans don't feel safe. Um, I think this is probably more evident today than it was when when this paper came out. Uh, we have a whole uh, Republican presidential leadership campaign being predicated on the idea that we have to do sort of radical things to make us safe, make us secure. Um, I'm interested in first yours and then Amy's thoughts on this paradox. Why do we, uh, at this time of great security, feel so insecure? So I think it's absolutely right, and it is something of a paradox. And I think there are at least two issues which we address in the document that really speak to this. One is the rise of China. It's very – for the first time in 100 years or 100-plus years, the United States might have a peer competitor. And that peer competitor is very different um, than other potential peer competitors that we've had, if only because China is a developing country, but also because it's completely unclear where China will end up. Will it continue to grow and be democratic, continue to grow and be autocratic? Um, crater in some ways and suffer significant internal unrest and and, uh, rising nationalist sentiment. So that's that's one reason. The second reason is uh, we have in the contemporary environment a disconnect between the ability to, to do harm 
and the underlying capabilities of actors, whether they're state or non-state. And that is historically unique. Um, so if we're thinking about uh, what we refer to as black swans, um, biological pathogens, cyber attacks, nuclear weapons, which would have to be generated initially I and mean, created initially by states but might fall into the hands of, of non-state actors, dirty nuclear weapons. Uh, in all of those cases, um, you could have attacks which could come from outside the United States or from inside the United States uh, which could either kill large numbers of people or threaten basic values, as we saw in, in, for example, in the Charlie Hebdo attack or the Danish cartoon attack. So I think those two factors, both the rise of China, uh, which is unprecedented for the U.S. in its history, and um, this disconnect between the ability to do harm and underlying capabilities, make people nervous. Okay, so Amy, um, on this same theme... You know, black swan events, uh, the term is relatively new. The fact of black swan events is not new. Uh, They've been possible for a long time. China's been around a long time, uh, you know, not in its current form, but we've had rising powers before. What is it, you know, about this particular moment, in your view, that makes uh, makes for this – you know, sort of dramatic difference between the way we feel and the objective experience of our our security. So I think I'd add sort of two points to what Steve already said, Ben, which is the velocity of change in the threat environment and the political discourse that we have in this country today. And you alluded to that a little bit with the presidential campaign. It's not just that we have greater uncertainties today. It's that the uncertainties about the magnitude, the scope, the nature, the number, the identity of threats to the United States is unknown and changing faster than it's ever changed before. And so if you look even just at intelligence threat assessments over time, we see dramatic changes over time in the relative ranking, for example, of cyber, which was nowhere to be found in 2007, almost last on the list in 2009, and now at the top of the list in 2016. So velocity matters, and I think that fuels the national anxiety that we that that, that the threats are changing so fast it's hard to keep up with them. And then there's the political discourse where we're told almost every day to be very, very afraid of something new. Uh, and I think that magnifies this sense of feeling out of control that we can't keep pace with the challenges confronting the country. All right. So, so Amy, tell us a little bit about this project. With, with, with that as an introduction, uh, you got a pretty interesting group of people together uh, to develop and talk about sort of national grand strategy, and I'm I just kind of give us an overview of the of of the project that this paper is the sort of culmination of. So Steve and I got together and started this group in 2013, and the idea originally was we wanted to get together a group of scholars, both at Hoover and across Stanford, that came with different areas of expertise, different perspectives. Uh, so that we could think together and meet regularly, we met every quarter over two years, about identifying what are the key foreign policy challenges confronting the country. That was sort of the, the main reason we wanted to get together. 
Now, we were hopeful that we might, at the end of the day, also be able to come to some kind of meaningful consensus, not only about challenges, but how to address those challenges, that we didn't know whether we'd actually get to that point. And we were very clear about that from the beginning. What we wanted to do was to avoid a least common denominator, watered-down consensus report at the end. And I think the other thing we wanted to do with this group was to have some mechanism to inject new ideas uh, and policy recommendations into the process throughout the life of the working group. So we've published, every member of the group has published what we call our think pieces as a result of every meeting. So we took the same group of scholars and we did a deeper dive every quarter on a different set of foreign policy challenges. So you come away with with three three major chapter heading level recommendations and a bunch of sort of more subsidiary recommendations. I want to start with the chapter headings. Um, and I, I want like ask, ask you, Steve, about the first one. The first one says we should be unapologetic about the pursuit of American economic and security interests and more tempered in the pursuit of ideals. So there is a embedded criticism in the words more tempered, as though people are being insufficiently tempered now. And I'm interested both in your account of the critique and the recommendation. So what's in, in what sense are we being too zealous in the pursuit of ideals right now? And in what senses should we be more uh, more tempered in the pursuit of them and, and more zealous in the pursuit of, of you know, realpolitik interests? So this is an old, I think, an old challenge in American foreign policy. How important should ideals be? Um, and democracy would be the most obvious, but there are others in uh, America's pursuit of its foreign policy. And this is a problem which essentially the United States dealt with throughout the 19th century using James Madison's admonition that the United States should not go abroad in search of monsters uh, and thinking about the United States as making itself a model that other countries should should imitate uh, or follow but not thinking that we should directly pursue our, our idealistic interests uh, in the international environment. This ends with a crash in, in World War I. Uh, with Wilsonianism and the effort to promote democracy um, and minority rights and utterly fails. And we see in the interwar period uh, isolationism, a kind of crude isolationism, which certainly aggravated or made worse uh, the Second World War. That is, the United States had the United States address the threats coming from Germany and Japan and earlier, uh, the war might not have been quite as severe as it is. I think what you've seen over the last 16 years, the is exactly the same kind of vacillation. So 9-11 comes at the beginning of President Bush's administration. Um, people in the administration looked out at the world and said, we're faced with an existential security threat. Um, to deal with that, we have to address root causes. Root causes were repressive regimes in the Arab world. And to deal with that issue, we have to spread democracy. If you look at Obama's interview with Jeff Goldberg, now very famous interview in The Atlantic, you know, what you see, I think, despite, you know, some exceptions in the wording is the body language is 
these places are just sinful. We can't do anything. We have to stay out of it. So what we're advocating, we need a foreign policy that's engaged, um, can achieve its objectives, can maintain American domestic political support, which is, as, you, as we're seeing in the presidential campaign, a substantial challenge. And we think to do that, focusing on American national security and focusing on American material interests are the right thing to do. And that does mean, um, as we argue in the document, placing bets on existing international institutions and organizations, which are far from perfect, but are better than anything we could hope to construct in Novo at this point in time. So so let's let's bring that this down to to the, you know, 100 foot level from the 40,000 foot level. Um, what are the things that we're focusing on now that we shouldn't be focusing on ideals-wise or that we have focused on ideals-wise? And what are the interests that we have given insufficient attention to and pursued insufficiently doggedly on which we should be more uh, focused? So, I mean, I think the clearest examples are looking at failed, failed and badly governed states and especially looking at the Middle East um, where we've had a tremendous amount of trouble developing a coherent strategy. And it wasn't, on the one hand, it was uh, the Bush administration's efforts at democracy promotion um, or, th- or thinking, I mean, it's not that democracy, there are some things that you can do that make sense, but thinking that you could put these countries on a path to Denmark. But you also see vividly in the case of, of Libya, um, in which the intervention you know, was motivated primarily by humanitarian concerns, supported by some very pe- very important people in the administration, reluctantly signed onto by the president. So in these cases, I mean, we may find ourselves in situations where we're better off with an autocratic and ruler who is certainly unattractive, Gaddafi. So it's certainly not clear now that we wouldn't have been better off not intervening in Libya not just us, by which I mean the United States and the West, but also Libyans, um, if we'd left Gaddafi in place. And having said that, I mean, we recognize that um, supporting autocratic rulers in some cases is an uncomfortable choice, but it may be the best option that we have. So that would be an example of a situation in Ditto in, in Syria, where saying it's not at this point that Assad can emerge as um, – a stable ruler of united Syria. But if you thought about Syria in a more confederal way and you think that there may have to be some area that's basically dominated by Alawites, might not be Assad, um, it would have led us to think about Syria from the outset in a somewhat different way. So I think these efforts to transform badly governed places and the confidence that we have in some ways had that we could put these countries on the road to Denmark has been misplaced. So that's an example of where we've invested maybe in places that we shouldn't have invested in. Um, I think if you're thinking about what we should do uh, more of in terms of material interests, um, and we argued this in, in the document, in thinking about Russia, we should have been less ambivalent about making a clear distinction between NATO and non-NATO members. Um, So that would have meant doing more ambitious things than we actually did at the Wales-NATO summit in terms of making it clear um, to Russia that threats to NATO members um, would be very problematic um, for Putin. And it's also reflected in, in 
arguing that we shouldn't have been as, I shouldn't say, I would say ambiguous rather than ambivalent, as ambiguous as we've been about what's the NATO future for Georgia and Ukraine? Um, and kind of giving those countries a sense that they would become NATO members when, in fact, that seems to us a highly realistic, unrealistic possibility in terms of the use of American troops. So there are things where we could have done more, but also things where we should have done less um, if we're thinking about our security and, and material interests. So, Amy, a let, lot— Let me just—Ben, can I just jump in here sure, for a second? Sure, Absolutely. And add to, to what Steve has just said, obviously, support for democracy and human rights is a core pillar of American foreign policy. It's been a core pillar of American foreign policy since the founding. What has varied over time is the way in which we promote democracy and human rights and how much we make that a focus of foreign policy. And one of the things we found in looking at history of grand strategy in this group is that it's not an accident that the United States was positioned to be a world power uh, at the end of World War II. That the strategy from the founding to World War I was really one of let's stand for democratic principles, but let's not impose them in other places. And that's how we were able to expand our territory, keep European powers out of the Western Hemisphere, ensure freedom of navigation, et cetera. And so what we're arguing here is that we're not anti-democratization and human rights, but we have to be much more prudent about how we go about promoting those values. And if recent history is any guide, we really are not good at imposing democracy on countries from the outside. And it's not just that it's against American interests. It's that hundreds of thousands of people in these countries, in the Syrian civil war, in Libya, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, have suffered also. So the long arc of history uh, is, uh, is important. But the, the way in which we promote democratization and human rights needs to be much more carefully considered. You know, for example, during the Cold War, uh, successive administrations repeatedly asserted to the Soviets how important human rights were in our policy, and we stood as a beacon during the Cold War. But we didn't try to impose a democratic regime on the Soviet Union from the outside because we knew that that wasn't feasible. So we, we're arguing for more prudential approaches to democratization and human rights. Um, so I take it that uh, so neither of you mentioned Iraq in in um, in your comments, um, but I take it from your last comment that you're um, that, that you're very far from advocating major interventions in the name of democracy promotion. Correct. I think you know in the document we talk about the need for stability also. And, you know, and, and here I, I speak for myself. I don't know if Steve has a different point of view, that stability has been underrated. And if we look at the principal threats to, to the United States generated by the chaos in the Middle East, it's the instability and the vacuum that creates that enables violence and terrorism to take root. Uh, and so democratization in the short term has uh, efforts at democratization have not been particularly successful, and they've uh, fomented more chaos uh, than than anybody expected. Okay, so so if my uh, if my many democracy promoting friends, including my democracy promoting spouse, were here, they would say, "Hey, wait a minute, um, are 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 you really advocating uh, a world in which the United States?" basically tolerates Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, and Bashar Assad. And there were 
security imperatives that uh, impelled those interventions. They weren't simply idealistic expressions. Um, and aren't we looking back and saying, eh, it wasn't so bad, um, you know, like, you know, the, the, the devil we knew really wasn't, the horns weren't that big. But these were horrible problems that had horrible security implications. And aren't, aren't we grafting onto those decisions a little more idealism than they may have actually had in practice? Well, I think in terms of actual implementation, idealism was significant. It was certainly significant in terms of democracy promotion in the Bush administration. And there were very concrete decisions that were taken that reflected that. For instance, letting Hamas participate in the Palestinian elections in 2006 without asking them to forego the use of violence. Um, And in the case of Libya, I mean, it wasn't a question of democracy promotion, but humanitarian concerns were certainly a major motivation for the intervention. The problem is this. These are bad guys. And saying that we're going to bet on autocratic regimes, um, you can't do that thinking that that's going to bring you stability forever because it doesn't do that. But I think the what we have to ask is, one, what are the alternatives? And two, um, if we think regimes have to be inclusive, which we don't dispute in this document, what constitutes good enough inclusion? But good enough inclusion doesn't mean that we're going to jump to free and fair elections in environments where political leaders will find free and fair elections unacceptable because it could put them out of office. So it means in some cases, no doubt, making uncomfortable choices and recognizing that there's no kind of path in which we can say we're going to displace an autocratic ruler And as a result of that, we'll put countries securely on the path to consolidated democracy. The problem is displacing an autocratic ruler may mean that you end up with chaos. Libya would be, or even Syria, I mean, a graphic example of that, uh, in which on every dimension, for us, for our allies, for people in those countries, you're worse off than you were before. So foreign policy is sometimes a choice among bads. So your second recommendation, which I'll I'll just read uh, because I'm not sure I can summarize it easily. The United States should focus on nurturing and utilizing existing strengths. We should take advantage of the large capital investments that we have made in alliances and institutions over the last 60 years that form the cornerstone of the international order. So, Amy, unpack this for us. What, What are the existing strengths uh, that the United States has in terms of the infrastructure of the international order, how is it being insufficiently leveraged now in grand strategy? And what does a focus on those existing strengths entail uh, in a more constructive grand strategy? Well, let me just say, Ben, to start with that we're very well aware that that there are institutions in need of modernization and reform, right? That there's a mismatch between the power realities today and the voting rights and, and power structures in many international institutions, including the UN Security Council. But But that said – When we look out at uh, our bilateral relationships, our regional alliances and institutions and our international institutions, 
What we argue in the paper is that these are very valuable fora. They set important norms uh, and that they tend to be underrated in the stability and um, and the rules of the road that they promote in international relations. So Steve mentioned NATO, for example. We think NATO is a pivotal institution to keep the United States in the Atlantic Alliance to make it very clear uh, the bright line between NATO and non-NATO members to help keep peace uh, uh, in Europe with the threats posed by Vladimir Putin. Uh, and that we need to invest more in terms of our diplomacy and in terms of our financial resources to NATO to make that bright line clear. That's in Europe. In the Asia-Pacific region, we don't have the benefit of of an alliance architecture like NATO, but the United States does have some pretty serious assets to bring to bear when we look at uh, China's trajectory. And and those assets are very strong bilateral relationships with nearly all of China's neighbors. So we have a hub and spokes system there. We have alliance commitments to many partners in the region, most notably Japan and South Korea. And one of the key challenges for us is to reassure uh, both our allies and China uh, that we intend to stay engaged in the Asia-Pacific region. And our presence in the region has held, has been a major uh, factor in keeping the peace in the region for a very long time. So it's not just in our interest, it's in the interest of our allies and it's in the interest of, of the region for us to remain engaged. If I might add, um, and this is something that's really um, become more vividly clear to me this week in discussions I've had with a number of people in Washington, you know, the, we're not in a situation in which we can say we have this liberal international order um, which we created after the Second World War, and it worked pretty well. But now we have to make it better. Um, our problem now is to preserve the order that we have. And, not- and why? Back up for a second. Why is that order threatened? What, what's what's threatening that order? Well, this is something I would say. We so clearly. I mean, there, in our paper, I mean, there clearly one one threat is Russia, which. Um, in which Putin, I mean, is motivated by domestic politics, but also by an alternative value system. On the other hand, Russian power is declining. Um, the rise of China, um, and it's not clear. I mean, the issue here now is it's simply not clear what set of values China will embrace. I mean, clearly they're not putting their arms entirely around the liberal economic order that we favor. However, and this is an issue which we really don't address in the paper, and we're seeing this um, in the American election and a number of other elections in Ann Applebaum's comment, column about we're three elections away from the post-war order crumbling. Um, the biggest challenges actually, I think, and these are not foreign policy challenges, are making the liberal international economic order, globalization and technological change attractive for a broad enough set of people in the advanced industrialized democracies so that they will see the order being in their interest. And I think the major source of pressure at this point, um, I think these pressures from Russia and China and, and even possibly black swan events are not trivial, but they're also a set of domestic pressures which are a huge challenge. Like what? That I think if this is not from our document. But uh, if you look at, you know, I think the most stunning article in the New York Times in the last two months uh, was this article that pointed out that life expectancy for, um, I think it was whites with high school or less education was declining. So there are big 
pieces of the American population that aren't aren't seeing benefits. I mean, their income has been relatively flat. I mean, it is true that the real prices of many products have declined. Is it exactly clear that people are worse off? They may be better off in terms of access to medical, uh, some kinds of medical care. But um, it, it is true that they're looking at uh, American. It's not that America's always had a, has always been a ratio algebra story. It hasn't been. There hasn't been, you know, some dramatic level of intergenerational mobility. But there are big parts of the American population now that are looking at their situation and saying, "What's this done for me?" And I think that's manifest in the primaries on the Democratic and Republican side. It's manifest in the support which uh, Le Pen has in France, um, which the ARD AFD has in, in Germany with you know a large conservative, really neo-Nazi party in Switzerland, which could get twenty percent of the vote. So those are big. Those are big. Those are challenges. They're, they're big challenges which have to do more with domestic policy than foreign policy. So I I loved your third recommendation um, because it's one that I actually think about a lot um, in 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 a lot of other contexts, particularly the biosecurity context. So the third recommendation is that the next president must focus on developing national capabilities that can be deployed against a number of different potential threats rather than being dedicated to any one possible kind of threat that might never manifest itself. So I, I, I started thinking about this problem in connection with biosecurity where, you know, you have – it's the ultimate black swan event, right? Presentation of new virus or bacteria that we've never seen before that the time from – the presentation of the bug to really bad things happening is really short. And what's the best way to be prepared for that? Well, you can't, you, you can't have stockpiled vaccines against non-existent organisms. And so, you know, you talk to people who do biosecurity and what they'll say is the best investment you can make against, you know, black swan biosecurity events is really good public health infrastructure that, uh, you know, knows how to take care of people irrespective of what the problem is and um, and sort of investing in good health care delivery and fast acting health care delivery. And so I, I, I like this as a sort of expansion of that that very narrow presentation of the idea. Um, we have this way of thinking about a new problem as something new requiring a very specific policy response. Amy, I'm wondering what are some examples of this where you say the temptation is to respond very specifically to a narrow new security problem, but the real the real goal is to have, you know, generalized capacity to respond to new problems in general that can be deployed against whatever uh, mole pops up that you need to whack. So, Ben, you've identified one big one, right, which is improving public health as one of the best uh, measures we can take to help us in the event of a pandemic. 
But more broadly, we identified in the paper a couple of other areas. It's no secret that Pentagon acquisition reform is in acquisition uh, processes are in drastic need of reform. And despite Secretary Carter's best efforts, we're not seeing tremendous improvement on that front. So we have many examples that have been written about recently in the press, uh, most notably with the blimp, um, the runaway blimp that's cost uh, a couple of trillion dollars already of weapons platforms that are exquisitely designed for a purpose or serve uh, you know, one narrow uh, need that actually either don't work particularly well or don't fulfill the sort of all-around athlete role that we need our military to play. And we single out in the paper the F-35, the much maligned, beleaguered F-35 joint strike fighter at roughly $200 million apiece, still not functioning very well, still uh, a weapons platform that has limited utility in some areas. And what we need to be doing is investing much more in lower cost unmanned systems that provide much more flexibility in either contested airspace or uncontested airspace. So Pentagon acquisition processes need a, a major overhaul. That's sort of point number one. I'd say that the second point is an organizational point. Uh, what we often see, and Washingtonians know this well, is whenever there's a new challenge, we create a new bureaucracy to deal with that challenge. And if one of the principal threats in American foreign policy life is coordination, oftentimes the last thing you want to do is to create yet another new office or another new special coordinator or another new agency to deal with that challenge. But that's exactly where we are in this spiraling uh, world of we, we need a special coordinator for that. So there is a substantive part of the recommendation that we need to be thinking creatively about generalizable capabilities. But there's an important organizational piece to that as well, which is let's let's advocate resisting the urge to create a new bureaucracy every time a new threat arises. Okay, but 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 let's let's be blunt about this. One thing that you're asking for when you when you say that is bureaucratic nimbleness. And those two words don't go very well together. I mean, you know, and, you know, it's one thing to ask Google or Facebook to say, be highly adaptive to, uh, you know, new problems that come up on your platform. But to ask, you know, the, and even in the biosecurity area, the CDC, you can get to do things like that. They, but asking, you know, the State Department or the Commerce Department to be highly nimble bureaucracies, that's a big lift. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether, whether you're asking for a capacity that we've never really figured out how to get a bureaucracy to do. Well, I think that's it's obviously an unnatural act for bureaucracies to be, you know, really adaptive. What I would say, and this isn't in the paper, but I think it's even more radical, a radical surgery required here, which is that the government has to understand that it no longer monopolizes the collection and analysis of information. And that in some cases, we have to let the private sector take the lead, in part because of the role they play and in part because of this nimbleness factor. And I'll give you one example in the cyber realm. Lots of consternation and discussion about information sharing between the public and the private sector. Well, parts of the private sector do this incredibly well. 
Facebook has uh, this thing called Threat Exchange, where in real time they share information uh, to private sector firms that are admitted to Threat Exchange that make them all instantly able to understand cyber threats that are knocking at the door so that they can improve their defenses, right? Imagine what it takes to actually have that real-time sharing of information now that you have to have a tear line in the intelligence community and involve multiple agencies. So one possibility is to say, you know, DHS, you should really figure out a way to join Threat Exchange so you too can contribute and benefit from this. But no, we don't have that yet. We have DHS building its own portal and the government doing its own bureaucratic thing. So in some cases, I think we have to deal with a a very new world in which the private sector can move much more nimbly uh, and has much more access to information than the government traditionally has. So you have – I want to – uh, uh, f- ask about two very specific recommendations before we before we close. Um, you have a a very interesting China recommendation, which is a a sort of needle threading between embrace China. It's the wave of the future. Uh, it's the future of our economic uh, activity, um, and really confront China. Steve, um, you seem to be arguing uh, that that it's a, a sort of conditional embrace of China. That is, embrace if it does the following things, confront to the extent that it does the following things. Uh, in your words, what exactly are you advocating with respect to China? So I think the first thing to be said about China is that we don't know what trajectory China will follow, one. And two, um, the ability of the United States to dictate a, a trajectory for China, that, that's not very great. We can't dictate outcomes in, for China. But what we need to do is establish a set of incentives which make it likely or more likely that China will accept the existing international order. And that's what we're advocating. So we're saying make sure that China is given full participation in existing international organizations. We've done that to some extent, but not fully. Um, We're arguing that the United States should ratify the law of the seas convention, which is providing the norms that we're using to challenge Chinese policies in the South and East China Sea. And, and, not but, but and at the same time, Um, maintain our military ties in East Asia, especially with Japan and South Korea, and and try to develop even new relationships with India and Indonesia. The purpose here being to make it clear to China that there are big positives which you can have, and you, China, have experienced very substantial positives as a result of your engagement with the world economy. And if you attempt to shatter the existing order by using force, there will be a cost to doing that. So our our motivation here is not to thread a needle, but to say we're not going to give China an excuse for abandoning the existing order. However, they might do it anyway. Um, And if they do, I mean, following the policies which we're advocating, I think would allow us to address that in the best possible way. But we shouldn't give them an excuse um, for trying to shatter what's really been very beneficial to them. So finally, Amy, uh, there is a discussion here about 
strengthening governance capacities in the least governed places in the world, which is an area that that Gabby Bloom and I have written about as well. Um, um, And specifically, strengthening intelligence and security capacities in those areas. Uh, I'm interested in how this interacts with the larger grand strategic vision. Well, as, as Steve discussed earlier, we recognize that there's tremendous instability that comes from weakly governed and poorly governed states. And we're in a world of suboptimal choices, to put it mildly. It's, 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 no good options exist. And so what we're advocating in the paper is approaches that recognize we have a multitude and a multiplying multitude of threats, but we have finite resources, right? We have finite material resources and we have finite attention to all of these different threats. And so much as our earlier discussion talked about uh, the wisdom of having a good public health system for biosecurity threats, our recommendation for poorly governed states is to Uh, invest in capabilities that improve governance, as Steve said, good enough governance, so that we improve stability in those regions and decrease security threats emanating from them without committing uh, enormous amounts of resources and attention to those states that suck attention and oxygen away from focusing on China, Russia, and other threats. The paper is Pragmatic Engagement Amidst Global Uncertainty, Three Major Challenges, Steve Krasner, Amy Ziegart, thank you both very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for having us, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, email, and in any other way you can. Thanks for listening.